Hello, everyone, and welcome to Hardcore Finance Podcast with Shimon and Alex. Today, we have a very, very special guest today. Uh, we have Divya Narendra, and Divya is the founder of and CEO of SumZero, which is a global online network for professional and individual investors that facilitates the exchange of really top-tier, top-notch investment research. We also do other uh, amazing, fantastic services, such as capital introduction, buy-side career placement, media placement, and more. Some zero research covers thousands of publicly traded securities, has the best uh, analysts on Wall Street that participate there, and covers really all industries and geographies. Before Some Zero, Divya was an associate at Sowood Capital Management, a nearly $4 billion multi-strategy hedge fund, and an analyst at, uh, at Credit Suisse. Before that, and originally, Divya graduated from Harvard uh, in 2004 and was at Northwestern, which Shimon and I uh, doing our uh, MBA. And he's also on the board of Gemini, which you know we always talk about crypto and Bitcoin. Gemini is one of the largest exchanges in the world. And Divya came to fame because while in college, he actually co-founded uh, Connect You, which is the predecessor to Facebook, and was featured in the 2010 Hollywood movie, The Social Network. And so lots to talk about. Super excited to have you. Divya, welcome to the show. How are you? Thanks, guys. It's, uh, it's fun to be here. Yeah, great to have you on the show. Yeah, fantastic. Fantastic to have you on the show. So... Um, why don't we why don't we just jump in look you've had a great storied career kind of from connect you uh all the way to some zero obviously lots of entrepreneurship uh along the way but tell us how you went from you know starting well being in the precipice of facebook really all the way to now being in the forefront of uh the top investment advice in wall street yeah, it's been a little bit of a roller coaster ride, um, but uh, I don't know. I think, I think uh, you know, when I was thinking about career um, opportunities in college, uh, you know, I didn't have super strong views on um, what I wanted to do when I was, you know, eighteen or twenty or even twenty-two. And so for me, um, you know, I spent a lot of time in my dorm room just thinking about. Um, opportunities, uh, you know, and, and meeting a lot of people who I thought were interesting and, you know, maybe wasting a lot of time online <laughs> as college students do. Um, and so I, I think one of the things that, that I felt, um, at least my university experience could have benefited from was a, a better connection to peers, both, you know, on campus, but also, um, outside of campus. I mean, in, in Cambridge, there are so many universities and obviously in Boston as well. Um, and, you know, if you think about all the interests that you might share with, with fellow students, uh, they're, they're almost innumerable. And, and whether it's, 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 you know, preparing for um, class or if it's, it's purely something social, uh, you know, th there was uh, sort of an obvious need for, um, you know, an online network that could connect, uh, that could connect students and as I thought about that, you know, it hit me that that need and that um, that that sort of desire extended far beyond, you know, the academic environment and 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 went, you know, into the professional environment and, and also, uh, you know, after graduation. You know, we we had had uh, at the time. This is two thousand and two. Um, MySpace, as well as Friendster and other other platforms that um, had become fairly popular. Um, you know, even Craigslist, things like that were, were, were taking shape at the time. Um, but nothing that had a consistency of and quality of membership that, you know, I think I needed as, as, as an individual student on campus. And it hit me very early on, again, this dates back to 2002, that if I built a website that um, screened for membership based on harvard.edu email addresses, that in itself was going to be a game changer for um, social networking and, and create far greater appeal to students uh, where they have all these natural affinities. And, and that realization, um, you know, got me super excited. And it turned out that at the time I was living with a guy in the same dorm who was a, um, an engineer who, who had already secured a job at Google. So I think he had interned at Google that summer, the prior summer and was looking to, uh, 
to, to go to Google full time. This is before Google was, was, was public. So this is pre-IPO position that he had. Um, and this concept, as I talked to him about it, resonated. And, um, you know, I also lived, my college roommates were the Winklevoss brothers, and they were very entrepreneurial, came from, from an entrepreneurial background, you know, got feedback from them on the concept, and they were super excited about it. And, and I think, you know, like, like any entrepreneur, the, the process is one of problem solving and, and, and also one of excitement and being able to foresee, you know, a, a future that's maybe a little bit different from what exists today. And I think if you're the type of person who gets excited by that, um, you might find yourself in, in a career involving entrepreneurship. Um, now, obviously, in our case, that initial vision um, came to light in a way that we would never have imagined. You know, I think, uh, you know, when you look at um, how social media has impacted the world today, uh, you know, some of that stuff probably would come as a surprise to people. But certainly imagine if you were back in 2002, 2003, 2004, you know, thinking about what the impact of this type of technology would be. I don't think a lot of people would have imagined some of those ripple effects. Um, but, but that said, uh, I think for me, it was an incredible journey and, um, you know, really helped shape uh, my business acumen as it, as it stands today and, and, and also, you know, all of my professional experiences. So uh, we ended up, um, it's funny, one of my friends was the brother of a guy who is Mark Zuckerberg's classmate. So two years younger than me. And uh, he introduced me to Mark, um, you know, with, with sort of the, uh, the, the backstory being that, you know, Mark also had an entrepreneurial background. He'd done a bunch of stuff on campus that was a little bit controversial, but clearly had some programming skills and also um, had an interest in, in entrepreneurial endeavor. You know, a lot of my classmates uh, were really smart, but didn't necessarily want to put away the textbooks and, you know, forget worrying about final exam scores and, and focus on building something. Uh, and this was before, you know, VCs were staked on campus and everyone was like looking to build the next big thing. I mean, this, this was back when the prestigious decision was to go work for Goldman Sachs. You know, the, the, the right thing to do would be if, you know, the dream job is to go work for McKinsey right back in 2003, 2004. And so um, finding somebody who was both skilled at developing or engineering, but also um, looking to, you know, not simply take a job at a place like Google or, or a, you know, a Fortune 500 was actually harder than maybe it is today. Um, and, you know, the rest is sort of history. Like, you know, people have seen the movie and, and um, you know, kind of know generally what happened. But, you know, when we realized that uh, after meeting with Mark that, you know, he was going to build his own version of this initial vision that we, we, we communicated to him, um, you know, we kind of had to go back to the drawing board and ultimately realized that because, uh, a first mover advantage and some of the viral growth that we were seeing with, uh, with Facebook when it launched on campus, that it would be very difficult, if not impossible for us to, um, you know, recapture that, that, that pole position in, in terms of building the same thing. And so we ended up in litigation, obviously that took eight years or so, you know, it took a very long time, but, uh, I decided to go, um, uh, just into the workforce and spent, um, a couple of years at, you know, as you mentioned at Credit Suisse and then, then worked at a hedge fund in Boston. Um, and that's where I kind of picked up my interest in investing, my, you know, kind of my interest in the financial markets. Um, but I never lost my interest in, you know, technology and, and the, um, you know, the desire to ultimately operate a business. And so what happened was uh, in 2008, um, I was, you know, chatting with a, a friend of mine from college who was actually working at a a fairly large hedge fund at the time. And um, we were throwing around ideas and that sort of spawned the, the, the concept behind some zero. And, and the vision there was to create an online network, you know, a la Facebook or LinkedIn, but where membership was limited to professional investors. And, um, you know, we uh, realized that, um, you know, at least at that point in time, there was no online repository for all of the investment ideas and research and content created by professional investors. So you had plenty of research from Wall Street. You know, we, we refer that collectively as, as sell side research. 
And then, of course, there's a lot of mainstream media covering stocks and, and so on and so forth. And, and of course, you have retail investors who also um, follow the markets very closely and, and may opine on different assets and, and, and things that they're interested in. But a lot of the content and insights and research that uh, were you know, held at places like Fidelity or, or similar firms um, really had never been published. And we wanted to shed light on that entire world of what we call buy-side research. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we, we set out to do that in 2008, you know, launched a, a beta version of the site back in 08 and initially just kind of spread it amongst friends and people I knew within the analyst community who were working on the buy-side. Um, and it's taken off from there. You know, we, we spent a lot of time thinking about what incentives compel people to share their proprietary thoughts. We, we spent a lot of time thinking about how to, how to gamify you know, the community. And these are the sort of problems that I think all online platforms think about, whether it's Facebook, LinkedIn, you know, Etsy, Pinterest, Uber, like all, all these platform businesses are always thinking about engagement. Um, and so a lot of the things that I, I, I learned as I was yeah, building out Connect You, um, the, the, the Facebook predecessor, you know, we sort of applied to some zero. Um, you know, if you if you recall, when Facebook started, it was it was only at Harvard and then they, they branched out to other Ivy Leagues. And then after that, they branched out from there. Um, and then they ultimately branched out um, beyond universities altogether. You know, Sum Zero kind of similarly, you know, started out as, um, uh, you know, being a, a buy side only tool that, you know, you basically had to work either at a hedge fund or a mutual fund or some, o- some other, you know, institutional money management firm to be able to, to gain access to Sum Zero. Um, and over time, we've kind of evolved that concept um, um, quite quite significantly, but but we still focus on, you know, really bringing forward the highest quality possible investment content, you know, available anywhere. And um, you know, there's I think a lot of room for us to keep growing as we as we fold in new communities. But um, there's a lot of parallel I think to how we thought about growth versus um, what you see I think with a lot of maybe more more traditional um, social networking platforms. Yeah. So, you know, thank you for this. And, and one of the things that I've um, really enjoyed over the years is kind of learning from you and, and um, being inspired by you is, you know, when you went back to school, uh, you always said, hey, you know, your experience has shaped uh, your future path. And, you know, getting a JD MBA, you wanted to know that part of the world and, and you're kind of building upon these the building blocks of, of what you've had in order to, to create that path in the future. And so when Shimon and I talk a lot on the podcast, um, you know, our, our basing building blocks are very macro investment focused. And so we talk to, you know, we, we share our ideas. We have our own theses uh, around, you know, where we think growth will be around macro environments and so on. Where I think we haven't really dived deeply on is going a little bit deeper into the kind of call it, you know, going from macro down to swing down to day trader. So there are obviously a lot of different investors out there. You know, people sit there and, and day trade. Um, uh, a lot of them do this, in fact, on the floor of the exchanges. So can you just help shape a little bit um, for our listeners? What are the different traders out there? You know, you have like a ma- macro investors. You can put money in the SPY and just leave it there for years, right? Or you're f- looking at b- big macro swings. You go and you're rotating out of growth into commodities and so on. All the way down to I'm looking at the hourly charts or even the 15-minute chart. How does that, how does that you know, look and, and what investment, um, maybe what trader type is appropriate for what maybe personality or, you know, based on whether people are looking? Yeah. So let's let's first not conflate, um, I, I guess, asset class with trading style or investing style. So macro, you know, is really more of a, it's an asset class, right? And, and macro, you know, can involve fixed income, which is itself an asset class. I, I would think of macro as a very broad, top-down way of looking at things. Um, and uh, you know, th- that gets to um, um, you know how you're thinking about you know maybe currencies and commodities, fixed income. Um, within that, you've got treasuries and other different types of, of, of um, fixed income related asset classes. But within this kind of broader notion of asset class, you know, for example, crypto is, a, is an asset class in and of itself. And, and, and you know, whether you invest in crypto or not can be informed by macro related items, um, you know, things like 
uh, inflation, for example, is, is a very important factor in how people think about crypto. Um, GDP growth, um, even fiscal stimulus, all the stuff that's going on right now in the Biden, Biden administration can inform your view from a macro standpoint into how you might um, evaluate a specific asset class. Now, but as far as um, investing styles, um, I would sort of think about that very simply. Um, you can break that up into kind of like short term, medium term and longer term. Um, uh, and, and there are some people who, you know, trade very, very short term, right? Like you have high frequency traders who are looking at, you know, minutes and seconds, um, even, even fractions of a second um, in, in terms of being in and out of positions, um, irrespective of the asset class, be it equities, fixed income, crypto, whatever it might be. You have medium term folks who probably are thinking more in the, you know, the multi-month to a year time frame as far as how they think about investing. Um, and then you have the, you know, probably the longer term folks who are typically holding um, their investments for over a year. Um, and, and so because these time frames are, are, are really quite different, you know, the, the evaluation process that you would go to to determine whether something is an interesting trade is very different from uh, determining whether something is worth holding on to for five to 10 years. Um, and generally speaking, the folks who, who, who have those longer time frames are doing much more fundamental analysis, uh, you know, um, and less of the momentum stuff, right? Um, now, momentum is is obviously an important factor that a lot of people consider. But if you talk to true value guys, like people who um, are looking, at the, you know, the folks who are dissecting 10Ks and 10Qs, um, doing channel checks on companies, looking at, you know, talking to their competitors, talking to their suppliers, those guys don't really care so much about um, charts and a lot of the stuff that you see on YouTube and, and, and frankly, even mainstream press. I can't tell you how many times I turn on CNBC and I listen to some guy talk about, you know, the 250 day moving average or, or some of the stuff that a lot of like tr traders look at. Um, now me personally, I'm much more long-term oriented. Like I don't really follow any of that stuff. Um, you know, all of the investments I've made where I've made any significant money have been through, um, much, much longer term uh, time horizons, right? So, um, and we can talk about some of those, some of those names. Um, but that's kind of the general, I, I mean, I would say the spectrum, you know, you've got some folks who are very short-term minded who tend not to have, generally speaking, like longer term viewpoints uh, because maybe they're not doing that fundamental work. On the flip side, you have the folks who don't care about macro they're looking at things on an extreme bottoms up basis um, and they're, you know, building models. They're, they're, they're generating DCFs. They're looking at comparable multiples to understand, you know, what the fundamental intrinsic value of a given asset is. Um, now on SunZero, our community of contributors tends to be more along that side, that right end of the spectrum doing very deep fundamental analysis. You know, somebody might post a, 5,000 word report looking at a SaaS business to try and understand, you know, what are their, what, what's their revenue growth going to look like? What are their margins going to look like going forward vis-a-vis -vis the, the competitive landscape, regulations, et cetera. They're doing that DCF, um, they're doing channel checks and, you know, they're, they're coming up with a model that is oftentimes significantly um, removed from current trading price. Um, you know, usually the people who are, in the, in the professional industry, at least, their cost of capital is typically north of 20%. Um, and many of them are looking for investments that will compi compound at that rate, you know, over multi-year periods. Um, now, doing that analysis is hard because, you know, predicting revenues, predicting costs, it's a very difficult thing to do. Um, some people get it right, some people get it wrong. But that's that's sort of the MO of that, you know, that investor. I, you know, I think on the shorter term um part of the spectrum, you get a lot more noise. You know, you might, you might own a stock today. It goes down, uh, you know, 30% tomorrow. And, and that would be normal. You know, that happens all the time. Um, you know, people have been talking a lot about GameStop recently, short squeezes, all that stuff that's been going on forever. That's, there's nothing really new there. Um, so, you know, with, 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 um, risky assets, be that, you know, typically equities, distress credit, you know, crypto, you can expect really, really big moves in the short term. But I, I think what sort of separates the people who are kind of successful, at, you know, kind of making the right decisions versus the wrong decisions, 
um, generally speaking, have fundamental views on why they're you know taking part in the name. They're not just relying on looking at a chart or um, you know maybe uh, taking someone else's. Uh, recommendation as gospel. They're, they're, they tend to be doing their own homework. Yeah, th- this is super interesting. And it, actually, this is music to my ears because Alex and I have been arguing recently. I'm much more of a very long term, very macro kind of uh, I, I do my investments based on like where I see the right. economy going like five years from now. And Alex has been getting into some technical analysis recently and we've been uh, debating a lot, but uh, you said something really interesting, which is like the cost of capital is like 20%. And we discussed this, right? The government is printing money at a rate of like 15% or the S&P 500, which is also going up at that rate. So to beat that, uh, that's essentially your cost of capital. And we've been talking on the podcast about how a successful strategy to beat the market requires some kind of belief that you hold that most other people do not hold necessarily. Uh, and that's how you make alpha on top of the market. So have you seen any uh, successful either strategies or methodologies of evaluating things that kind of stand out of like, oh, this this research type really yields good results and really yields signal that we can trade on? Well, I, I, I mean, they're, the, the strategies that I personally follow, like, and this is, again, this is just me. I'm not, I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not one to preach, but um you know, they're all kind of fundamental and they kind of boil down to, um, you know, when you talk about growth, um, like finding businesses that have um, sustainable growth, um, you know, that have a 10 year runway ahead of them um, and are trading at a reasonable price uh, is is uh, is is kind of always the, uh, you know, I think like what we're looking for. Right. Like. You know, I think if you're an investor with, you know, as you said, longer term time horizon, you have to be aware of um, competitive dynamics, right? And and really thinking hard about, um, okay, like, you know, should I own Tesla at whatever fifty times sales, or, you know, whatever the multiple is, and and um, what does that price imply about growth, and what does that growth, what does that implied growth rate imply about the competitive landscape two, three, four, five years from now? And does that make any sense? So I, I really think, you know, when, when people talk about strategy, the 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 mechanics of valuation are are oftentimes the same between you as somebody who went to Northwestern for an MBA and Steve Mandel, who runs Lone Pine and manages, you know, $40 billion. It's just who's doing more work to figure out whether they're um, assumptions are correct on the, the few key metrics that actually matter for a business. Right. Um, and you know, when you look at the competitive landscape for, uh, let's take social networking, you know, just as, as an, or like, let's just take the social media industry at large, you know, and you're evaluating the differences between like a Facebook, a TikTok, and a snap. Right. Um, like, you know, if you happen to be bullish on one versus the other, part of that has to come down to, um, you know, like which one has the technology edge, which one doesn't, how durable is that edge? You know, that's a subjective question, but a lot of people don't do that work because they're just not, you know, either they don't have the time or, or the, the know-how or, or the patience. Right. Um, but I think ultimately like, if you think about your own personal investing, and if you ask yourself the very simple question, you know, if you look at your own portfolio, where have you put the most money? It's probably in the names where you have the highest conviction. And if you ask yourself, well, why do you have high conviction around stock A versus stock B or asset A versus asset B versus asset C? It's probably because you feel like you've got, um, more knowledge about that particular asset than something else. Right. And I, and I think ultimately, you know, information is power and like, you just have to know more. Right. And I think if you know more, you're much more likely to size investments appropriately. You're much less likely to sell when things don't go your way on a, on a shorter time frame. You know, like, I, I don't know if you guys remember 2012, 
Facebook IPO'd at $38 a share and very quickly fell to $18 a share. So within six months, it, it experienced a 50% price drop. And at the time had like a $50 billion market cap. Now, if you were the momentum investor, you would have completely missed the, the point. Like you would have probably sold at 18 or 20 and then realized like, oh wait, like, you know, there's 20X upside from here. Like you would have missed all of that. And, um, you know, but again, if you, if you had like done your homework and really understood the business at the time, there was a huge narrative being put out there in the media about Facebook not being able to transition to mobile, you know, um, and to, you know, to understand that, well, what does that mean? Like, what is the hurdle there, right? Is it a technology hurdle or something else? Is it something structural they can't respond to? Very quickly, they proved that that, that actually wasn't that much of a hurdle for them. Um, and of course, they acquired Instagram, which was um, kind of mobile first. So, um, you know, I, I think it's doing your homework. I, mean, I think really that's what it comes down to. We see this now with crypto as well. I know you guys are big on crypto. It's like a whole new language. And I think what's fascinating about it is that all the institutions, you know, the you know, I mentioned Lone Pine, but, but really any institutional fund manager, they're not even allowed to own this stuff more often than not. Um, and there's no institutional research on it, right? You can't go to, you know, if you go to Goldman Sachs, like they're not going to send you a research report on Aave or Ethereum or, you know, that's, that's going to offer any insights that like maybe you couldn't have gotten on your own by reading a white paper. And I, and I think that's really interesting that there's like this birth of a new asset class, right? Um, and I think the people who are going to do the best are going to be the ones who truly understand which of these blockchains is going to persist um, in the long run? You know, is Bitcoin going to be the next Facebook or is it going to be more of a MySpace? You could ask that same question for every single blockchain out there, right? Um, you look at Ethereum. Well, how is Ethereum positioned relative to Cardano? That's highly debatable, right? Um, but this is the sort of stuff that requires, I think, a lot of um, deep insights and, and, and a lot of fundamental research, um, which is exactly why I created some zero, right? Is to kind of shed light on, on these topics and give people a venue to, um, to display their own homework and, and their proprietary notes. Yeah, that's actually a, a really interesting point because I remember very vividly at Kellogg when Facebook IPO'd, uh, some accounting professor did this uh, bonus lecture uh -huh. about is the valuation justifiable, right? And uh, he was like, look, this is this is crazy in terms of multiples of revenue. This is crazy in terms of governance structure. Like he, he, you know, holds more control than any comparable company and whatever. Now, I, before Kellogg, I was uh, very big into the performance marketing space. And I was heading a, a very big team that we were constantly trying to buy um, ads uh, all over the world on different ad networks. And for me as a consumer, as an advertiser, I was like, no, Facebook is actually sitting on a treasure trove of data because like the only really, really effective ads at that time were search ads because then someone is telling you, I am searching about something. So they're a really good customer. And Facebook, I could already see, you know, they know so much about you and this is not uh, part of the stock valuation, but I was in the minority. Yeah, I'm surprised that Professor said that because even before, um, you know, when they went public, they were doing uh, uh, their their LTM sales. So their prior year sales were run; they were at a four billion dollar um, sales level um, the year before they went public with a billion dollars in earnings. So they had you know twenty five percent net income margins, which is unheard. If you look at technology today, you look at any of these stocks, Uber, Airbnb, whatever you can, every single one of them. Um, very, very few have any positive cash flows. In fact, they tend to be very heavily cash flow negative. Now, that's okay if you if you buy the story, right? If you if you're a you know if, again, if you're a long term holder and you you believe that you know a company's reaching an inflection point, whatever, you might still want to own some of those names. But at the time, they were massively profitable, and not only were they massively profitable, um, it was like clear that growth was going to accelerate, uh, you know, at least, you know, at least in my mind. And, um, you know, when, when you sort of look at the macro picture, the whole world was transitioning to mobile, right? And, um, you know, everyone 
from like the Upper East Side kid on Park Avenue to like the, um, you know, you go to the third world, like you go to India and, and even there, like cell phones um, were, were springing up all over the place. And you really think about like what that means in terms of connectivity and, and whatnot and which companies were really positioned to take advantage of that. There was no reason to believe Facebook would not be at the top of that totem pole. And so, you know, you could have owned that name um, at a very, very reasonable earnings multiple with years of growth ahead of it and just forgotten about it. And you would have made 20 times your money. You know, um, that's the sort of stuff that like I think fundamental investors get excited about is like the names that they don't have to trade. Right. You, you don't want to be in and out of things all the time because you know, chances are you're, you're going to be wrong. It just gets very noisy when you when you compress timeframes that much. Um, you pay a lot of taxes, right? Every time you sell something, you got to deal with that. Um, so it's it's there's a lot of friction in, in some of the shorter term trading. Um, but but yeah, I, I, I think there were a lot of <laughs> and even now, by the way, this is I mean not to plug the stock, but um, with this rotation out of tech, which has been driven by rates. I mean, there are a lot of people who are you know, staying up late at night because they're, they're freaking out about rates going to 200 basis points on the 10 year. Um, so what are they doing? They're selling all their technology stocks. Well, now you can buy a lot of those stocks at, at fairly reasonable entry prices. And um, again, if you've done your homework, like you can sit on those names for a long time and just forget about them, you know, and let them do the work for you. <laughs> so I, I love where this is going. This is tying together uh, a couple of themes here. And I actually remember, Shimon, you and I were discussing the Facebook uh, completely misvaluation. I remember you telling me this at the time. You're like, these guys are completely missing it. And it wasn't just the accounting professor. There were other professors that we're very close to. But it just shows that we're saying the same thing. But it shows how it's hard to kind of unstick your mind. And I, I had a very similar experience back in, uh, I don't remember the year now, 2005 or so. 2006, whenever Google, 2004, whenever Google went to an IPO, I was working for an ex-banker and we were looking at, you know, Google IPO for $85 a share, but let's call it 100 And we were, you know, he was, um, stayed after, I was an intern back then in college and he stayed after work and he kind of drew this back of the envelope valuation. He's like so overvalued, so overvalued. And he was working at one of the top, 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 top investment banks in the world. And they're at, you know, they went from 100 to 2100 now. <laughs> so you're talking about a 20, you know, 21x, 21x increase over the course of 15 years. I'll take that any day, you know. And the, the point is that I think it's very hard for two things. And this is what I kind of struggle with. And I'd love to get your take on this area. I, I think it's very hard for people to unsee the world once they've seen it. You know, I equate it almost to the analogy of, you guys know that illusion where it's like, it's it's a face and there's a vase in the middle and it's like two faces are looking at each other or it's a black vase and you can either see the vase or the two faces looking at each other. I think it's it's like once you see it, it's very hard to unsee it, but it's very hard to see it in the first place. And I and I, I challenge the point a little bit about how you know we are the same as a hedge fund manager because I think a hedge fund manager has a lot more tools at their disposal and all they have to do is use those tools correctly. So you know right now there's a lot of AI. Uh, uh, machine learning, natural language processing tools, because there's a, there's a flood of information, a flood of data that's coming at you. So what are, you know, what are you seeing in the marketplace? Do you, how are these tools being used? How can people leverage AI to discern signals from this, again, the, this fire hose that's, that's flying at you of different information, different signals that are in the market. And even like, just to your point, and I'll, I'll want to hear your opinion, but this whole rate increase, right? And how tech was sold off. The market was freaking out. And I, you know, I was, I was talking to Shimon a lot and I was like, I don't know, I don't understand what the hell is going on because our thesis theoretically should hold. We have a very long-term tech uh, bias thesis, but people were reacting, selling off tech based off of, you know, a, you know, a, a, whatever, I 10 basis point, 20 basis point increase to 1.6% in yield, which is, if you look back a year, it's exactly where we were a year ago. A year ago, we would have said, this is so low. And the market was just flipping the heck out. So how do you discern signals? How do you pull out the right signals? 
Well, so you, you first asked a question about, um, you know, how, how do you deal with this fire hose of data? Um, and, you know, what I would say to that is, you know, maybe ignore some of the, the Twitterati and, um, <laughs> you know, on, on kind of making sense of all the noise and all the data. Um, I completely agree. There's, there's almost too much data out there now. Um, and, 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 you know, part of that's kind of the media part, you know, there's just the, the 24 hour news cycle. Um, and, um, you know, there's also a lot of data that, that, um, is coming from everything from credit card companies to, uh, you know, social media companies, just, you know, there's a lot of tracking of user behavior kind of that, that creates a lot of, of, of extra data. Um, you know, for us as a business, like we use, um, AI to better understand and predict like what ideas people are submitting that will actually, um, you know, bear fruit and, and generate the alpha that you guys mentioned. Um, so part of that is, 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 uh, you know, machine, like running machine learning, um, algorithms against all, all of the, the stuff that we have. Part of it is looking at, um, natural language processing, um, and some of the advancements there are, are pretty incredible. I mean, if you think about how your, um, your, your, your Google Nest works or how your, you know, your, your Amazon um, Alexa works, um, you know, th- we have tools at our disposal today that, that are, um, you know, freely available that can interpret text and actually like create text, um, you know, on, on their own, um, which is amazing. So like, you know, uh, when someone writes an idea on some zero, like we, we can through AI create comments if we wanted to, that would read that idea, interpret it, and then offer commentary on that content, um, in a completely automated way. Um, now that's not to say that that replaces human commentary. It doesn't, but, um, it's just a sign of things to come. And it it sort of is a testament to, I think how quickly some of these tools are being, how quickly these tools are, are evolving. Um, so, I mean, look, AI is an, sort of this like omnipresent force that has, um, you know, for the last hour, however many decades has been kind of growing and growing and growing and growing. Now it's getting to a point where, you know, if you have an AWS account, you know, um, if you're, if you're, a, if you're a tech company, like you can leverage, um, AI tools that are just sitting on, on, on the cloud, be, you know, be it through AWS or other providers to make more sense of whatever your, um, your business needs are. And, and I think that's, you know, that's pretty amazing. Um, it's obviously having a significant impact in terms of, uh, um, you know, the autonomous vehicle industry. Um, but, you know, really all across the board, I, I can't really can't think of an industry that's not going to be impacted by it. Um, Alex, to your, to your point on rates, um, you know, uh, that's one of those, I, I think that was a situation where because they've, they've been trending lower for quite some time, you know, because of COVID, a lot of people who were sort of used to, you know, extremely dovish Fed policy were, were you know, taken, taken aback. But, you know, as you pointed out, the, the big picture really hasn't changed that much. And if you listen to... Um, you know, Powell's commentary, um, that, you know, they're, they're not looking at doing anything drastic, you know, um, even for rates to kind of, uh, I mean, first of all, near term, the, the short term rates being kept at zero for the indefinite future. I, I mean, you know, we're, we're probably talking about at least a year or two uh, before those rates change at all. So if you look at the 10 year, um, you know, or if you look at the period after the next two years, as they start you know, maybe raising rates a little bit, um, you know, uh, the average of those raises might not even get to 2%. You know, that's why the 10 years at 160, right? So uh, I don't think the big picture changes at all for tech. I think if anything, uh, it's a buying opportunity for, 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 um, for companies that, that you think have, again, good long-term prospects. And, um, you know, it, it doesn't really impact the, you know, you look at the the weighted average cost of capital in equities. That's historically been seven to eight percent, and you know, rates going to two percent, even if they did, that doesn't change that. Um, so, 
you know, look, there, there are a lot of stocks that I think were trading on fumes that, you know, where valuations made no sense. Like, you know, is, is Peloton going to be worth what it's worth when people start going back to work? You know, I, <laughs> I could argue maybe not. Um, and there, there, there are other names like that that I think benefited, you know, maybe too much in 2020. You know, maybe they were, they were up 5x in 2020 or 10x in 2020 um, because of COVID. Uh, but, but, you know, there are plenty of other names that, that didn't see that, that type of growth. And, you know, now we're, we're, we're sort of, uh, uh, you know, saw a lot of pain. Like, you know, Salesforce, you know, fell from uh, like something like 270 now down to 210s, 220s. That's like a real business, you know, and they've, they're, they're a profitable business with plenty of growth ahead. Uh, and there are plenty of other companies like that that would fall into tech that I think are very reasonably valued um, because of this fear of, of rate of, you know, kind of rates, you know, ballooning um, beyond the Fed's control, which I also don't think is, is, is going to happen. Yeah. It's, it's funny because of uh, Jerome Powell's like, guys, no, really, we are not increasing rates. No, no, really, we're not. And the market's like, no, 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 but you will. He's like, no, no, but we, we are not. We're not going to do it until 2024. And the 10-year is like, no, but we think you will. It's just the last week, and I think the last, I don't know, just this whole COVID and post-COVID this whole time, uh, I think there's a consensus at least that it's one of the most interesting times of being an investor and trader because it, we've never really seen this before. Yeah. Yeah. What's crazy about it is that if you're an equity investor and you, you think, you know, you have to realize real yields are still negative. So even with tenure at 160, you're still talking about negative real yields or close to zero. It's, you know, and so why would you want to own tenure treasuries? Like you'd have to be insane. Like you, you're guaranteeing that you will lose money over that time horizon if you, if you own that instrument. Now, look, there are a lot of entities that have to, right? Um, if you're a pension fund or whatever, and you've got to meet certain obligations, like, you know, maybe you have to own it. If you're a government, you might have to own, you know, but um, for people like you and me who, uh, you know, aren't looking to invest for the, uh, you know, to, to lose money, <laughs> um, it's, it, it, seems, it seems like an overreaction. Yeah, for sure. Well, so, so speaking of yield and a new asset class, and I know I'm going to kind of leapfrog on the fact that you sit on the board of Gemini. Uh, so I don't know if you if you have an opinion here or it's kind of an open market, but how do you think of, I guess, two parts? So crypto and what part of the portfolio do you think it requires or doesn't require, right, for more institutionals? And within crypto, is there a difference to you between Bitcoin versus uh, the other currencies? Uh, well, they're absolutely different because, uh, you know, Bitcoin has sort of become um, really, I mean, it's funny, Bitcoin's sort of almost given up the whole currency status in, in, in a sense, right? Like, um, y you know, people don't transact in it. They just hold it. And, um, you know, I, as a guy who, uh, like, I think, was trained in more traditional, um, you know, investing and, and, and not being a gold bug, right? Like I think some people buy into the gold value proposition because, you know, it has a history, it's got certain pedigree. Like I was not that person. Like for me, gold is jewelry. It has some industrial value, but like I, I've never personally invested in gold for the sake of generating a return. Right. Um, um, you know, Bitcoin, uh, you know, really, I think has value because people think it has value and they, they, they buy into the scarcity asset of, of, of Bitcoin. And I think, I think Bitcoin's gotten to the point where, you know, that, that, that bear case of it just going to zero um, has sort of been, yeah, I think that's gone away at this point because, there are just too many people who who have a vested interest in it. I mean, when you look at the the Bitcoin ecosystem, you know it's 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 the developer community, but but you know also all the institutions, the individuals, the Robinhood traders, the exchanges, etc. And and you think about this on a global basis, um, 
you know, one of my um, investors in SumZero runs ZebPay, which is like the largest digital asset exchange in India. Um, there are just too many people who own it for, I think, Bitcoin to go away, barring some sort of serious um, uh, technological innovation um, that, for whatever reason, created a, a far superior store of value. Um, but I, I think right now, um, you know, if, if you're uh, if, if you if you if you're thinking about portfolio construction, um, you'd be remiss not to have Bitcoin somewhere in there. And, and I think you know, for for a lot of people, they would say, you know, gold is, should probably be, but you know, one to five percent of someone's portfolio. Um, I mean, that, that's pretty common. You know, um, you could argue the same for Bitcoin. So um, I don't see that changing anytime soon. And what it, what's amazing is just the flood of institutional interest in it. I mean, it's not just Michael Saylor. It's not just Tesla. It's not just Square. Um, you know, there, there are 10,000 companies, public companies in the U.S. You have to believe that, I don't know, half of those CFOs at least are thinking about um, Bitcoin as a substitute for corporate cash. And of that, some, some significant portion, some non-zero portion are going to actually pull the trigger. And I would say, if you think about the longer tail of mid to small size companies, you know, where they don't necessarily have the board, um, the, the bureaucracy around making those kind of decisions, um, a higher percentage will actually put some corporate cash into into Bitcoin. Now this will take time, but uh, you know the I think the the seeds have been planted, and it's 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 almost inevitable that you're going to start seeing more reports about you know this happening, and and also in the insurance industry we've already sort of seen that um, um, with with Bitcoin kind of entering entering the the portfolios of some insurance companies. So. Um, I think it's incredible. And it, it, what's even more incredible is how, you know, Bitcoin's existence and adoption at the institutional level lays the groundwork for everything else that's going on in, in the blockchain world that's arguably even more transformative. Um, I mean, Alex, you and I, you know, we've talked about Ethereum in the past, but um, if you think about Bitcoin being digital gold, um, you know, you kind of have to think about Ethereum being this like, global decentralized computer on which almost anything can be built, be built, right? It's a, it's a touring complete um, operating system almost, right? And so we're starting to see kind of how that ecosystem is developing, but it's developing quickly. Uh, and and um, I, I think it's super exciting, you know, how that might disrupt a lot of industries today that are highly centralized into, into, into something more decentralized. Um, but yeah, I think, I think the Bitcoin story is amazing. I think, um, it, it, you know, it's going to result in a lot more capital flowing to, um, kind of the broader, uh, you know, like all of the other blockchains, um, and a lot of the decentralized apps that I think in the past people have just sort of been talking about, but now are actually becoming reality and, and, and actually being used, which is the, you know, I think the more important thing. You know what's interesting about uh, Bitcoin? So I I'm I completely agree with you. I was never a gold bug. I, I never understood investing in commodities because uh, just from a first principles perspective, my idea was like, if there's a commodity and the price goes up, uh, technology will come in and figure out a cheaper way to produce that same commodity, right? And so we saw this like with, for example, with oil, the price of a barrel went to 140 bucks in 2009, and then people invented fracking. So that's why I never understood why would gold be a good store of value. And then Bitcoin came along, and it it completely kind of changed the store of value game. Uh, and now that I'm thinking about it, it's basically a technology that figured out a cheaper way to produce a store of value. And by cheaper, what do I mean? I mean, like if the US dollar was traditionally a really good store of value, it became not a very good store of value when the government prints a lot of money, right? Like one pound was one pound of sterling silver, like 300 years ago or whatever. And now one pound is like, you know, less than 1% of that. So it's it's very, very fascinating how uh, Bitcoin like is a better technology for a store of value. And also when you think about it as a commodity, 
like a better commodity, quote unquote. Uh, there's a Michael Saylor video that I really like uh, where he talks about steel and how steel was a technology and, and how when you invented steel, you can suddenly build better ships and better buildings and all of that stuff. And so when I'm thinking of Bitcoin as a commodity that's just better as a store of value than anything uh, else out there, uh, it can build a new financial system on top of it. And it's just like mind blowing how uh, how advanced it can be and how much better it can be and frictionless. Uh, and Ethereum is also interesting. Be, I, I'm less, I, I'm more of a Bitcoin guy. Um, so so I, I know a little bit less about the other uh, currencies, but uh, the world computer could also be very, very interesting. Um, do you have any thoughts about um, where the opportunities are in the crypto space uh, or just like hold for a very long term and or like do, do you uh, in some zero, do you guys talk about uh, crypto research of like which tokens will appreciate or is it more of a macro view of the crypto space? Yeah, there is there is crypto research on some zero. And um, actually, um, one of my buddies from college who's a member um, wrote a really great piece on Bitcoin. Um, uh, I think it was about a year or two years ago talking about um, kind of stock to flow, looking at just the, you know, the demand for Bitcoin relative to the amount of Bitcoin that's newly mined every year. And that, you know, that stock to flow model is something that I think a lot of folks um, who look at Bitcoin for more fundamental context um, find useful to frame value. Um, but what's interesting about Ethereum is you're starting to see the same dynamics. I don't know if you guys have followed the, um, the EIP 1559 protocol release um, that just got approved by the Ethereum developer community, they're going to start burning Ether. Um, and they're planning to start doing this in July, um, which is going to create what could potentially be a, 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 deflate, a deflating asset, like a, you know, a supply that's actually going to shrink over time, um, not even be fixed like it is, you know, like it is with Bitcoin. Um, so, you know, I, I think in terms of like opportunities, uh, look, it, it all depends on your risk tolerance. Like I would say Bitcoin and Ethereum by far are uh, the most institutional grade and they both, um, well, actually, you know, I, I would argue Ethereum even more so than, than Bitcoin. Ethereum to me is this base layer for a whole future of decentralized applications that, that, that live on it. So you know, today I was reading about NFTs or nifties, however you want to pronounce it. Um, you know, if you want to buy digital art, you're going to have to own Ether, right? If you want to buy a, um, I don't know, like that, that Kings of Leon album as a nifty, like you're going to have to own Ether. And, you know, whether it's that or if you look at DeFi, you look at some of the lending apps that are becoming popular, um, or if you look at some of the, the decentralized exchanges that are that are that are becoming you know much more popular, you know they all live on and, and require people to hold ether. And I think um, that's you know when you take that vis-a-vis -vis this potentially decreasing supply of, of 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 ether, like that bodes pretty well, I think for um, you know Ethereum's future as a blockchain, but but also as far as its, as its token value. Um, the other stuff, like, I mean, look, you're getting, you're starting to get into smaller market caps. Like that comes down to, you know, I think what your risk tolerance is. Do you want to own something, you know, with a, a $10 billion or less market cap? If you do, that's, that's fine. You're making much, much, much more of like an early stage. You know, if you look, think about VC investing, you're, you're, you're getting closer to that seed stage level than you are to that, maybe that series D or series E or series F, you know, or a public markets investment. Um, but I would encourage, you know, folks to, to read up on all those other tokens, whether it's Chainlink or Cardano or, um, you know, some of the, some of the others. Um, but um, I, I think at this point, um, you know, with, 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 you know, ether being at a, I don't know what, it's like a 20% of Bitcoin in terms of market cap. Um, those two like seem to have the most, uh, sort of institutional appeal. Um, Ethereum's developer community is very extensive and global. Um, and uh, the rest, I think, is 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 going to be higher risk, potentially higher reward. It's hard to say which of those will win, which of those will not. 
Um, you know, I sort of think about, um, uh, actually, you mentioned Michael Saylor. He, he, he kind of equated Bitcoin to owning a, a block on Park Avenue, you know, 100 years ago, right? Um, which is a very interesting um, way to think about it. And, uh, and I remember listening to, to Tyler Winklevoss um, talk about, you know, owning a piece of the racetrack, not necessarily worrying about which horse is going to win. That's sort of how I think about Ethereum and Bitcoin, right? You, you're, you own this foundation. And if you believe that foundation is going to be here 10 years from now, um, it, it should probably be in your portfolio. And you, you just have to get over the volatility, right? You, you have to kind of come to terms with the fact that Bitcoin might drop to 20,000 tomorrow. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, it might go up to 70,000, who knows? But in the long run, when you look at the relative values of this versus the other commodities, not just gold, um, there's still plenty of room ahead of you. Um, the store of value argument, I think, is even broader than gold, right? Like when you think about well, store of value, what does that actually mean? I mean, how big is the U.S. Treasury market? I mean, we're talking trillions and trillions of dollars of negative yielding instruments, you know, what would it take for some of those owners to be like, you know what, I, this doesn't make sense. Like I want a different store of value. Right. And, and I think that's where the thesis for owning um, Bitcoin kind of becomes even more interesting. Or Michael Saylor's convertible notes. I think that's exactly what he's doing, right? Attacking the treasury market by allowing people to buy, you know, debt. Yeah. I, I'm not so sure if micro strategies um, sort of, uh, levered ownership of, of Bitcoin is um, is the best way to. I mean, look, if you're an investor, you should just you should just buy the underlying asset. Um, his his stock kind of feels like an ETF, and they haven't approved ETFs yet for for crypto. So there's a little bit of a, a legal question around whether like micro strategies in its current form is something that institutions should get involved with from an investment standpoint because um, it does sort of feel a little ETF like at this point. <laughs> uh, I'm not really sure how that that's going to be looked at um, by the SEC, but you know, who knows um, if you're, if you can't own the physical asset or the, the digital asset, you still have the, 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 the grayscale Bitcoin trust. You also have a few in Canada, they approved an ETF that I think recently pooled something like $500 million in assets. So, but look, it's inevitable. Like there, at some point you've got Gary Gensler now at the SEC. I mean, they're going to approve a Bitcoin ETF. At the, you know, I don't know if that's going to happen this year, but you, you have to believe in the next year or two, if the market cap of the asset class consistently stays above a trillion dollars. And I think gets beyond, you know, as it approaches $2 trillion, I think it's inevitable. And then you get this wall of money coming in. Um, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it was a JP Morgan just recently told their clients to consider putting 1% of their assets in Bitcoin as well. So it's, it, it's, it's going to happen. I love, I love, uh, by the way, listening to Michael Saylor and as he kind of, everyone asks him the same thing, especially about micro strategies. And a few days ago, I don't remember where I saw this interview, but he kind of, it feels like he kind of gave up and he threw his hands up. He's like, well, because they asked him about owning, you know, is it the best way of getting exposure to Bitcoin, but owning MicroStrategy stock? And he goes, well, you can buy the underlying, but if we're talking about a derivative or a synthetic, <laughs> I think he's just like, he's calling it what it is. That, you know, his old company is just a synthetic, essentially, like you're saying, an ETF, a levered ETF. And we were actually talking about the Sushimon yesterday about, you know, what's the value of the stock and how do you value it? And it's almost, it's the biggest, you know, there's a, there's a term aqua hire in M&A where you're, you know, you're, or, or like an aqua M&A where you're just basically yes. acquiring company, right? To hire someone. It's almost like this, yeah. like, yeah, like aqua invest. I don't, I don't even know what, like you're investing in micro strategy because you believe that uh, Michael oh, Saylor... I think he's, a, he's obviously a true believer. For sure. But you have to believe. I was going to say, I mean, he's, he's a true believer. Yeah, go ahead. 
Yeah, I mean, look, I, I don't own MicroStrategy stock. I don't. I don't even know what MicroStrategies does as a business or as an operating company. Um, but to be like, you know, if you're Michael Saylor, you're personally fully long, you know, to the tune of of a hundred percent of his net worth and probably more. Then to to take the business, put all of that cash into it, and then to borrow money, you know, you, you kind of have to be a true believer, um, you know, I think to do that. So um, I don't question his his like, you know, his intentions. I just don't, you know, as an investor, I don't I don't see why you would want to own that stock versus just you know buying the underlying, unless you couldn't buy the underlying, and I think. You know, as soon as there's, um, you know, some, uh, you know, um, well, as soon as there's approval for like a real ETF, like I don't see MicroStrategy stock holding up you know, as it has. Um, and, uh, you know, it's but but I mean, look, he's to me become the number one evangelist in the industry, which is saying a lot because there are a lot of evangelists now. You know, it's, it's not just Novogratz and, you know, but he, he sort of superseded all those guys in terms of his, um, his price targets and, and just kind of the, the broad rationale that he has for, um, for, for, you know, for, for Bitcoin. I also think it's interesting how uninterested he is in the rest of blockchain. Um, you know, he has almost nothing to say about anything else going on <laughs> in the digital economy. It really is all about Bitcoin. Um, which I think is a little peculiar, but but worth noting. Yeah, for sure. I feel like we need to uh, we need to have you back, and and there's so many angles we can go with this, and you know how to how to evaluate. Will the premium go down? We could talk about GBTC, which is a grayscale trust, and with its negative premiums now, there's arbitrage opportunities. I mean, this it's so fascinating, and I think we're all fairly lucky to be in the position where we are, and in the era of where we are, where technology is taking off to such a uh, fast extent where we can see a birth of a new asset class. I mean, it, this doesn't happen very often. And fundamentally, if we believe what we believe and everything comes true, it's a generational shift of wealth. Not total wealth, of course, but it's a, a you know a big uh, shift of wealth. So, look, Divya, thank you so much. Um, Thanks for coming on. I love the conversation. How can people find you? Uh, what either on Twitter or on some zero? If people want to uh, understand more about buy side research, where can you get? Yeah, my my first and last name. Well, my Twitter handle is just at my first and last name, so at Divya Narendra. Um, and then on some zero, actually, one thing I should mention is that um, for the first time, we have started to offer some zero access to individual investors. So um, like you guys, your parents, whatever, um, we you can now read some zero research, including like I actually personally wrote a piece on Facebook in uh, um, like two years ago that, that I, I, I actually keep updating because I, I follow the company very closely. Um, but um, there's crypto research on the site. And what we've done is if, is is created essentially a retail option uh, at three different tiers. So um, one of them is called SumZero Lite, and that's uh, super affordable, $350 a year. And what we do is, um, you know, every two months, we, we send a full length SumZero research piece um, covering, you know, something that was highly rated by our buy side community. Um, and then at, at sort of higher tiers, you get more access to more content. But <clears throat> I think it's, 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 it's really kind of revolutionary because before this, if you were an individual investor, you'd have no access to kind of this type of content. Um, so I'd encourage people to kind of um, check that out. We also have a free newsletter, which, which they can check out if they just go to sumzero.com. Um, but um, yeah, that's uh, that's it on my end. And, and I would also echo, Alex, what you said about um, the birth of the new asset class. There, There's potential for significant wealth transfer, um, you know, because a lot of the people who own this stuff, speaking to crypto, like are the millennials, right? It's the people who, um, you know, are, are, are tend to be younger. And, and, and a lot of the older folks, you know, either don't care about the stuff or um, maybe they don't understand it, 
you know, or just whatever that it's just not native to them. And I, I think it's, it's, it's really good actually um, for the, the entire retail investment community to, for the first time be, you know, in a way on the inside and not the outside, um, which is really part of our mission at some zeros to kind of spread those insights. So thanks for having me on guys. This has been really interesting. Um, and hopefully we can catch up again sometime. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And please. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, Hardcorefinance.com. Uh, please leave comments. Um, you know, keep the, keep the topics coming. Divya, thank you so much for having, uh, for coming on, uh, sumzero.com sign up incredible research, uh, on the site. And, uh, we got to do it again. We got to bring you back because we're, we're running out of time. And I feel like there are a lot of, uh, other amazing topics that we can go down and discuss. Sounds good. Looking forward to it.